It is December the 3rd, 2021, and you are listening to Curiously Polar. Hello and welcome back. I'm Chris. Uh, there is Mario. And I'm Mario. How's it going? <laughs> yeah, here. How's it going today? It's going. It's going really nice. It's uh, minus nine already now for a, a long time. We have had uh, very low temperature, at least a week. Okay. And uh, it's nice and crispy. And today there is not a cloud in the sky. Plus that tonight there is going to be a big corona hole and we are expecting really exceptional northern lights. So looking forward to going out tonight. And oh, wonderful. Those. Wonderful. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we have. You? An ep- How's it going yeah, down there? <laughs> it's it's okay. It's okay. It's the it's the pre Christmas frenzy going on. Mm-hmm. So, um, with everything that comes with it, and juggling a lot of things. Okay. But yes. hey, we we managed to get this episode out, and then mm-hmm. we are probably planning for one more before the end of the year. And uh, yeah, we have news, like Arctic news, polar news. Right. Yes. What's happening up here and down there? You've um, put a lot of yeah. interesting stuff together for today. Let's start with uh, with one that is not very visual. <laughs> All we have is <laughs> this article without pictures. Uh, the Arctic, yes. the Antarctic Treaty is the Antarctic Treaty. We start down south to start with today, and um, the first of December was the. Uh, 67 62nd anniversary of the Antarctic Treaty of the uh, actual acceptance of this Antarctic Treaty uh-huh. it was then signed uh, by the uh, initial 12 countries uh, a little later but uh, it was uh, it was ratified a little later but uh, it was signed on the 1st of December in 59 and this is uh, a world first um at that time, it was not um, it was not normal to agree not to colonize or not to take possession for your own country of a territory. Hmm. So it's the first uh, territory where on the first land or piece of land uh, that is uh, truly international. It's not even a protectorate like like one would say Spitsbergen or the uh, Svalbard area, which is, yeah, international, like lots of countries can have access to it, but it is still managed by Norway. In this case, in Antarctica, it is not the case. Antarctica is truly international. Yeah, we have we've talked about this in, in previous episodes. Like it's it's kind of sliced into like pieces of cake, you know, little quadrants... Yeah, more more for practical and historical reasons because right. the different bases. I mean, of course, you want like Australia; they have easier access to the piece of Antarctica that is closest to them, right? And uh, and the same with Chile and Argentina, and uh, and we have uh, of course uh, discussed about the uh, like claims to the territory and whatnot, and uh, like different uh, activities that might take place on there, but. Uh, the uh, the important part of the treaty, I mean, the first three articles are extremely telling 
and uh, and hopefully this is something that will last and it will be an example also for other areas but first of all antarctica shall be used for peaceful purposes only and this is the first article so no militarization of antarctica and no not only no militarization but also no quarrels should happen in antarctica and we're talking about the antarctic soil and the area around antarctica so the uh, Falkland War and the claims over South Georgia, they don't encompass the Antarctic Treaty. We are outside of the area, of the area there. Right. And, uh, and then uh, the, uh, the second article is about uh, scientific cooperation, and that Antarctica is a place for freedom of scientific investigation and cooperation. So all uh, data should be made available, which is then in Article 3, and uh, it should be freely accessible and uh, and also the uh, the fact that uh, that there is this huge uh, underlining of the science in antarctica is is extremely is extremely important and uh, and, and this has shaped the uh, let's say the human presence in antarctica uh, with uh, maybe the few notable exceptions of the expeditions to cross Antarctica or these uh, like feats that uh, have been somehow put under the auspices of any of a scientific framework. Because when you're crossing Antarctica, you are crossing it also for like gathering data either on what humans can do or about what Antarctica looks like. And this is, this is really nice. Uh, to that... I might just uh, also say that it's not that f- when you, when we are saying it's freedom of scientific investigation doesn't mean that anybody can go there and just do whatever they <laughs> want. There are rules. Rules need to be there followed. Are, there are rules. Uh, let's say that all scientific uh, scientific investigation has to undergo some sort of approval by the respective government of uh, of authority. So, for example, from Norway, if you are a Norwegian scientist or you're you're like starting off from norway you will have to ask norway as a signatory of the antarctic treaty to approve of going to antarctica for your project and what right. you're going to be doing which is somehow also guaranteeing that there is uh, a um uh, that there is there are like some sort of sound scientific basis for going that there is a financing there are insurances and all the things that are needed also to come out of there and uh, and like environmental protection, like what right. you do with your with your with your equipment, with the uh, with the garbage that is being produced necessarily by being there. So, so how many in, countries like, have a presence in Antarctica? Do we know that it, there must be a list somewhere? It is somewhere. 54 at the moment. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah the Out of 100 of and to, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean the the there is uh, a. Um, uh, like you are not member of the Antarctic Treaty if you are not actually active scientifically mm-hmm. in Antarctica. So it requires some sort of financing of going there. And for the renegotiation in the Antarctic Treaty in the in the uh, in the nineties, then uh, there was a number of other countries that have tried to establish uh, scientific uh, scientific expeditions and uh, and therefore claim for. A place in Antarctica. There is also one thing that is also interesting is that Antarctica should be free free from nuclear 
activities. You say should be. Yes, because like it depends on the interpretation of the article. I think what was it? Is article of four or something that uh, when we are talking about uh, about uh, uh, nuclear activities, I mean war warheads. Yes, I think that everybody is uh, is actually agreeing on keeping nuclear warheads out of Antarctica. But how about nuclear powered vessels? Nuclear icebreakers, that kind of stuff. A nuclear icebreaker. Uh-huh. Or how about a nuclear power plant? Because especially now that we are talking about climate and emissions of CO2, if we are looking at powering a station during the winter where there is no sunlight and uh, maybe when there is a wind, there is too much of it and when there is no wind, there is no energy... And when there's it no sun, solar panels don't work. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So how to how to power uh, in, like in a way that is not emitting greenhouse gases? Giant how hamster to power wheels. A station down there. Yeah. So mm. so there is uh, there are there are a few few things up for debate on whether to keep nuclear power totally out of Antarctica or just the nuclear weapons and it's so remote it's not easy to put an undersea power cable there. but or is i don't know if you notice like we don't have it in the news but chile is now planning an, an internet cable from chile down across the drake I've to read the antarctic peninsula yeah. Hmm. yeah so there might be it might be soon a fiber another Part of a fiber optic cable. There might be soon high speed internet from F- at least an a FTTA couple of days. A cable fiber to the Arctic, uh, Antarctic. Oh well. <gasps> yes. Okay. A little bit like like the cable coming up to New Orleans in Svalbard, which is yes. like some of the fastest internet you can get on the globe. <laughs> Still crazy because New Orleans is so remote. Um, yes, exactly. So how so much for the Antarctic Treaty? And how about uh, happy Latin- anniversary. Let's look up in the sky as the next mm. item on the list because we have another another celestial phenomenon going on. Exactly, and that's, that's something really exciting. There is a, going to be a total solar eclipse on December 4th. So today is December 3rd, so tomorrow. A total solar eclipse in the early morning of tomorrow, uh, universal time. And uh, around 7.30, it's it's at its maximum. And uh, it is visible down south. So the uh, if you yeah, if you get this uh, this uh, this graphics here, you can see that there is a green sun yeah. just over the Weddell Sea in Antarctica. And yeah. then there is this uh, um, this, uh, this these, corridor uh, of blue lines, blue dark there, yes. blue lines. Well, that is the path of the eclipse of the total eclipse. So the total eclipse will start somehow east of the Falkland Islands, and then it would swing over South Georgia and down into the Weddell Sea, over the uh, over the antarctic peninsula and out towards uh, towards like the uh, the west antarctica and uh, and of course there are there are some partial eclipses and as far as south africa and tasmania we're going to be seeing a little bit of the uh, 
a little bit of the eclipse. But the best place to be, if you see it from this map, is Antarctica, and especially the Weddell Sea. And there are quite a lot of expedition ships that are going to be down there. I don't remember Henry's plans. Henry's plans, but I hope he's that somewhere he's down going there. To be down there. Moment, I think yes. I think that he's supposed to be in South Georgia, because that's a place where people would be able to go on land and and see. And hopefully they're going to be having good weather because uh, yeah, a solar eclipse with uh, a cloudy sky. Well, if it's total, you see, of course, the uh, the darkness, but. Uh, but you're not going to be able to appreciate. It's, it's fully. really interesting. Um, I, I, I find it fascinating that people have such a fascination with this uh, phenomenon, which happens regularly. It happens all the time, pretty much. And, and it's, it's yeah. just the shadow of the moon going in front of the sun during daytime. Oh, yeah. and, uh, and of course, it, does, it makes this corridor through the earth and people take really long trips sometimes to see it. Um, yeah. I have witnessed one solar eclipse, one total solar eclipse in my life, and yeah. it was an interesting experience. Um, but after that, my personal did fascination you, is more like, yeah, it's interesting. Did you did you uh, did you experience this thing that I've heard that happens with all the birds start yes. stop singing? And yes, it went quiet. It went dark. It was like night during day. Um, not quite yeah. night. It was more like twilight kind of thing. Yeah. And then. Um, things went quiet and uh, the wind died down. So that's interesting. It ended up well. <laughs> the wind well. is solar powered, right? It's it's the heat, yeah. um, making yeah. things move. And what I like is is this uh, this way in this article. So whoever's watching the video right now uh, in EarthSky.org, there's this uh, photo by let me see via Tanakrit Santik. Kunaporn, um, mm-hmm. and uh, it's this it's this time lapse in one photo where uh, the person shooting that ended up doing like a time lapse every few minutes, uh, another shot, and then compositing that into one photo. So you get not just an idea of the the, the path of the sun, but also the um, yeah, the, the the development, the extent of the eclipse, of the ex- yeah. eclipse, and then in the middle it's the corona. Where I mean, this is really really interesting because the sun and the moon are so different in distance from us, but up in the sky they are virtually the same size, and uh, that makes that solar eclipse phenomenon possible. Yeah, and how do you make uh, such a picture like this one here? Because of course, for the sun path and the the uh, like all these little suns that you see in a in a yeah. line with more or less of the shadow, it's the, several exposures at a regular distance. But yes. how about the people? Because they have not been standing there. I mean, they are frozen, of course, because it's a frozen landscape. Oh, the pe- but, people uh, is is one one photo, and the, that's the, one so, frame, isn't so it's, it? It's, yeah, a com- okay. it's a composite of all these individual sun shots plus one frame where the people look nice and. So um, easy, easy to make in uh, in digital, but uh, more difficult if you are using film photographs. Yeah, but digital, this is super simple to make. Just yeah, just make sure the exposure is proper on the top frame. Probably one one frame plus then all these little cutout pieces of the sun are individual. But um, yeah, that's about about yeah, an, an hour fantastic. of work, I would think. So. Okay, yeah, because the eclipse uh, here we are having a one minute and eight seconds of 
<laughs> of uh, of eclipse i think <laughs> or yeah. something one or like less than two minutes of eclipse so the, it's the um, difficult part when photographing something like this is is getting the exposure right for the different phases because uh, sun gets yeah, less and less, back, and, less yeah. and and you can't go back so you the sun gets less and less and less it gets less and less bright and then you have this corona and that needs a different kind of exposure and you will yeah. need some filters on the camera to block out some of the direct yeah. light um so it's a it's well and then not not super easy and then scientifically it is important uh, to have these eclipses when you uh can see uh, the effect of uh, Einstein's theory of relativity and the gravitational force of the sun bending the light of the yes. from the stars in the in the back uh, behind it. So taking pictures like these, and especially like from a telescope of the sun and the, what's happening around the sun, is extremely important uh, scientifically. Yeah. Um, let's move on Very to the next good. item. BBC yes. News is talking about <laughs> about Albatross's um, divorce. What's going on there? Yes. Now this is uh, this is a study that was uh, performed on the Falkland Islands. As you can see, there are black-browed albatrosses, and it's a fantastic place down. Uh, you've been down there, Chris, haven't you? Nope, I have Falklands. not been down there. No, that's one place we have to take you both. Henry I'm a northerner. I, I'm a northerner. I've only been to the Arctic. Uh, the Antarctic is still okay. missing on my list of uh, places yeah, to see. Yeah. Well, you've been so many places up in the Arctic. I thought you've been also down yeah. in Antarctic. I didn't remember that. Sorry about that. But we'll have to, of course, do something about it. <laughs> we, uh, But uh, the Falkland Islands are home of quite a lot of pairs of breeding black-browed albatrosses, which are very, very nice-looking albatrosses. Not the biggest ones, but uh, but still quite big birds. And they looked at more than 15,000 breeding pairs over 15 years, so about 1,000 pairs every year. That's a lot of albatrosses that need to be checked. And the albatrosses actually have a period in their development where they are trying to figure out which partner to find and then they find a partner and they usually they are sticking to the partner and uh, they are a good match for life so they every year they come back to the same place there on the falcon islands it's more or less the same area of the colony as well and they sit there they do their dances with a beating their beaks together and things and they make their eggs and they fertilize them and then they take they alternate in getting the food for the chicks now the problem that they found here is that the albatrosses now in recent years are actually straying from being fidel to their mate what so when they say divorce rate they are actually they're actually cheating on each other when the one is going away or uh, not arriving early enough. Well, they just find another mate, and, and that is. And you're not. saying that that has increased over the time, and that has increased, and they are actually trying to figure out. These uh, scientists, uh, uh, they were looking at uh, the divorce rate, or like what ha what happens. Like, yeah, we have an increase of the of the infidelity or like getting another mate than the one that you have been observed with before from 1%, which is your original baseline data, to 8%. So oh, it's that's actually a quite noticeable. Increase. That's quite, 
quite noticeable. They are very careful in say, in phrasing this, but they're saying this is nothing compared to humans. Uh, but uh, <laughs> <True>. <laughs> there are two reasons why albatrosses might be going for another mate instead of waiting for their own partner. And one is that they have to, like the partner is absent for a longer period of time. So they have to fly much further out to feed themselves or to feed the chicks. So uh, so they are not arriving. So there are also like limits to the patience of an albatross waiting well, for it, their mate. Is it patience like, or are albatrosses just a bit dim and they forget? Yeah. I'm I'm anthropomorphizing and that is not yes. that is not what a, a biologist should do. But there is a trade-off <laughs> between waiting for your mate and your reproductive success. So it's not that it's a calculation in there, but the instinct tells you you got to reproduce, it's now. And then you don't have a mate. Is that mate coming back, or is that mate as a mate disappeared? So it's 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 uh, in the end it yeah. comes down so to economic reasons, pretty much. At the at the end, it is uh, it is a trade off. Like okay, well, it would be really nice to wait for you, darling, but uh, but you are not you haven't you're not here on time, and the clock is ticking. The seasons are passing. The season is passing, and we need really to get. I need to get this egg out and uh, I need to be fertilized if you are a female albatross or the other way around mm -hmm. uh, for a male. So th this is one problem. And and of course, this is the, uh, the, the, the flying away is because the waters are of a different temperature. So there are differences in how the circumpolar current is, uh, the Antarctic circumpolar current is moving and the, um, the Antarctic convergence. We talked about this in a previous episode. I don't remember which one, but there is one like the convergence that uh, could be a nice keyword to find if you're searching. The other reason is that because of climate change the climate is getting harsher there is like more extreme events and we've heard of this everywhere in the globe and extreme events they stress animals humans and albatrosses included and when the stress hormones go up then the uh, chances of uh, like irregular behavior or non-typical behavior happen Uh, more frequently so uh, so that might be also the reason but both of these uh, reasons possible explanations are connected to a warmer climate and especially warmer waters around around the Falklands and around Antarctica and that is uh, quite uh, quite uh, quite a piece of news <laughs> but uh, interesting that uh, mm -hmm. like the uh, reproductive success i mean climate change can be a, or any disturbance can have a, a lethal event straight away and then it can have sublethal different levels of sublethal sublethal effects which means that the effects can be seen through either a really careful observation over a long period of time or both or one or the other so in this case 15 years of looking at a thousand pairs of albatross every year and then you can see the difference they wouldn't have seen the difference significantly from one year to the other how do they even do that i mean how they does that work scientifically well 
scientifically, you go and uh, you tag these animals. You ring the albatrosses so it's, with a it's ring. It's all based on, their, on their the foot. usual rings that you put on birds' feet. Well, that's that's the that's the traditional way, but it's still the safest way of looking at it. So you go to that colony. Fortunately, the albatrosses they go to the same colony. These albatrosses, at least, they go to the same colony, more or less the same place. So once you ring them once, then with binoculars you can check. I mean, sitting close by the edge of the colony, you can mm -hmm. check which, or with a telescope, you can check which birds are going together with which other bird. So it's it's just a question of going there and ringing the birds and uh, and checking them. That's meticulous. And doing this meticulous work. Putting 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 a thousand a thousand pairs a year means two thousand rings that you, <laughs> that that you that need to, to match ring. up so somehow wow yeah but especially going out and, and in the colony and, and checking these birds is not easy and you usually do it when the birds are very young I mean they, when they are before they are fledged so right. you don't do it with the adults but you have to be there when the adults are not there chasing your way okay let's go back yeah. to the arctic and talk about ice yes yeah, next, and now we are moving north. And uh, this um, this uh, first piece of news is actually linking to what we are talking about uh, uh, with the last episode, episode 142. And this is about this uh, big Polinia area north of Ellesmere Island. And, uh, and, and it's both this item and the next one in the newsreel. Um, the uh, uh, phenomena of warming through inflow of ocean water from the south is called atlantification we're talking in the arctic and uh, it has an influence on the temperature of the arctic so on the left frame here you see the sea ice thickness it's a view from a polar view of the uh, of the earth where you see the north pole and you have different colors so we're, according we're to looking CS down thickness. straight down on the north pole pretty straight much down so there's the greenland the there's uh yeah. there's yeah. svalbard yeah okay yeah the north america and siberia all around Iceland, and then yeah. you see like a maximum extent of the sea ice or more or less a maximum extent of sea ice and different colors of thickness and you can see that the maximum thickness is north of the canadian archipelago and north of greenland yeah and uh, and then when the colors fade out into the blue of the ocean and towards the periphery that's where you have the thinner ice like a little bit like uh, south of uh, spitsbergen or yes. around spitsbergen or or svalbard in the frame on the right, you see the uh, sea ice thickness anomaly. So what has changed in the period between, uh, well, in the last uh, 20 years, uh, more or less, I think uh, it's uh, 2013 to 2020 or so. Uh, 2011 to 2020. 2011, yes. yeah. So in the last years, uh, and this is because the technology is very difficult to get sea ice thickness. But uh, you can see that there is a loss of mass or a loss of thickness, especially where we had this Polinia in the last episode. So they were, like, where it especially goes red north in of Ellesmere graph, Island. Uh, the more red it goes, the more ice yes. has been lost in thickness. Yes. And the and the loss of sea ice is mostly north of the uh, 
of the uh, Canadian archipelago in Greenland. So in the last ice area that we saw <laughs> in the LIA that we had in the last episode. And also between northeast Greenland and Spit and Svalbard. Yes. That's also a really big loss of thickness in the ice. And uh, and this is uh, this is actually quite uh, quite uh, quite something. And uh, there was a little uh, video. Maybe you can show this uh, nine these last nine years <clears throat> that uh, uh, so where it's an animation by the to... European Space Agency because they have the satellites up there, so they can look at the data and visualize it. Yep. And uh, this shows how it changes over the years. There's a nice graph here. Yeah. With the, with the season, so starting with uh, with lower thickness and coming up with higher thickness, and you can see that there is a, a big variability between the years and uh, in the in the sea ice volume that's in the Arctic. But it doesn't it doesn't like this is of course about the sea ice volume, but the sea ice volume is of course it's due to sea ice thickness, the thickness, but also the sea ice extent. Yes. So it's uh, there are quite quite interesting parameters there. And in uh, the point of of this article is that when there is uh, ice coming from the North Atlantic into the Arctic, especially through the Fram Strait, we are talking about Atlantification. So the Atlantic Ocean water carries its water to the Atlantic to the Arctic, and it causes the sea edge. Uh, the ice edge to retreat to uh, retreat up north so for example between Svalbard and northeast Greenland and uh, and uh, it makes the uh, it makes the um, the uh, the ice thickness lower and this like when when you measure the ice thickness i mean measuring sea ice extent you have to have a satellite or a way of having the coverage of the whole Arctic in a short period of time. And and you can kind of see, well, the ice is going up to this moment, uh, to this uh, geographical location, up to this line. The problem with sea ice thickness is that the traditional way of looking at sea ice thickness is being on site. So, like, once once the ice becomes white, and it's compact, you have no idea whether, like just from looking above and looking at the color, of whether it is 20 centimeters thick or 10 meters thick. So there is no possibility of doing this. Uh, the uh, traditional method is of going on site and just uh, making a hole. Drilling. Yeah. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and measuring, drilling a hole through the ice and measuring the thickness. And then, of course, there are differences in how dense the ice is, depending on how much uh, uh, salt from seawater is in the ice, how old it is. And this is, this is, of course, also a very safe method of measuring thickness, except when the ice is very non-homogeneous, because the ice is not usually totally flat, neither from the top nor from the bottom. But there is... And this is where the new satellites come up. And uh, especially there are two satellites. There are Cryosat and the... Uh, and, well, there are two. The One is called Cryosat and the other, the other one is called SMOS. And uh, they can measure 
the extent of the ice, but also how high the ice is from the sea level. Hmm. And therefore, by calculating the buoyancy of the ice, they can check how much volume this ice has. That is interesting. So you can, you can do this uh, that precisely That's... from a satellite. Wow. Well, yeah, it, I mean, it's very specialized satellites, but uh, but these are um, this this is a process that is uh, performed by the Alpha Wegener Institute in the Helmholtz in the, in Germany, mm-hmm. and uh, it has uh, like every week they manage to have a the the uh, the images from both systems and to merge them and to calculate this, which is uh, where we get the volume of the data, the, the volume of the ice, the data on the volume Do of the ice. Do you know how that works, that measurement? Is that just a distance measurement? Like with one, yeah, of these, it is. one of these remote, I mean, I have one of these remote uh, uh, laser-based things that can measure how far, the wa- how far away that wall is, and it's quite precise. Yes. So is that similar? <clears throat> well, it's a similar thing. It's based on, uh, on radar uh, more than on laser because... Uh, the problem with laser is that if you have clouds, you will not see through it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, laser will be uh, will be quicker and more precise. And uh, and the uh, the challenges with uh, with radar is about the conditions of the surface of the ice right. and the condition of the surface of the seawater. Uh, storm conditions are, of course, creating less uh, reliable data than so- uh, than. How how often nice do they measure this? What did you say? Well, these are these are um, satellites that are in polar orbit or near polar orbit, so they have to taking they take they they do the calculations every week because mm-hmm. it takes a week for the satellite to take all these swaths over the North Pole. Right. For, like there are slices of the Earth coming over the North Pole, mm-hmm. and as the Earth turns around. <laughs> Uh, on its axis, then the satellite. Uh, so the, the satellites uh, are going another... like this around the poles, yeah. and the yes, Earth uh, keeps going... spinning under the satellite. So you get like different yes. slices for every exactly. every orbit, pretty much for every orbit, and and then the mosaics have to be put together, and it's right. a, it's a lot of data, and a lot of data that has to be sent down to Earth from a satellite. So it's also mm-hmm. it's interesting from the transmission of the data point of view because we are talking about a lot of a lot of data we're talking the terabytes uh, of data probably it's a lot yes, of stuff yes 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 because you don't you don't you normally don't want the satellite to do some pre-processing because the pre-processing of the data takes energy and it takes also the volume of the computer on board has to be yes. increased and the processors but uh, it's quite uh, quite an interesting uh, system here and um and from this, I think that uh, if we go over to the next piece of news, <laughs> we stay <laughs> in is, the Arctic, which is stay in the Arctic and talking about authentication. And uh, apparently, this authentication has started in the twenties, in the nineteen twenties, so a hundred years ago. So the uh, the influence of the anthropogenic climate change on on uh, on the on the Arctic Ocean was postulated to start uh, well, let's say about fifty years ago or something. But uh, there are some records in the uh, deposits in the mineral deposits in the Fram Strait 
in the isotope ratio that is in the oxygen isotope ratio that is in the shells of carbon or the carbon skeletons of some plankton species mm -hmm. that deposits in the framstrate so between Svalbard and and Greenland that let us infer that there was a phenomenon of identification already in the 1920s so warm water from the Atlantic was flowing into the Arctic Ocean already there so not Which only did we did we go up up there and uh, catch all the whales and stuff but we also warmed it up in some way well it's uh, you know if it's if you're talking about last time we we're talking about when was the uh, when was the beginning of the global change when talking about the cop 26 in glasgow and we're saying okay already in at least in the mid 1800s people were already thinking that maybe burning all that coal would have an influence mm -hmm. releasing all this co2 would have an influence on the climate well it did have an influence on the climate it was enough to have 40 50 maybe years of intense coal burning there was already having an influence. Who would on have the thought that we would do something to this planet we live on? <laughs> yes, and but but this is this is really uh, really quite interesting because this means that the the um, increase in temperature, so the baseline of the temperature of the Arctic, has to be updated. So right. instead of the Arctic having warmed, let's say, one point something degrees, it has actually warmed about two degrees because we are going much further back in time to see what was the temperature from which we calculate the change. So we need to have a different baseline. That's what you're saying. Yeah, the baseline has to be put much further <laughs> back. So we're saying the Arctic is actually warming has been warming more than than we had imagined. The Ar the, the Arctic was much colder in the 1700s, and it and it and, and the change the begins to correlate with uh, industrialization, pretty much. Yeah, it does. It does because I mean these are uh, I mean from these data, of course, they went back more than the 19 the beginning of the 1900s. You take uh, you actually go out and take some some carrots or some samples of the sea bottom, mm -hmm. where there are the the shells of the coccolithophores, uh, these carbon calcium carbonate shells, and and you see for the for the oxygen isotope ratio in there. And the more you have of oxygen eighteen, so the more you have of the heavy oxygen isotope, the more energy you have in the system, and which means that it is then the uh, a warmer a warmer climate. And then you can time this with uh, with other data series and. Uh, and look at the uh, look at the actual temperatures. Hmm. Um, yeah. So, uh, and this means as well that the models that have been modeling, like the uh, the past, like the way we understand the climate, is looking at past data and see how the system behaved. Well, here we need to insert some data that the system was actually needs to go and look further back. So. Let's see what uh, what happens. This is a, quite a new article now from the from the end of twenty twenty one, also on fizz dot org, and uh, it's uh, yeah, it's um, 
interesting to see what this does. But as we are staying with the Arctic and the warming Arctic, let's go on land. <laughs> and uh, yes. from SciTech Daily, we have a reference to uh, studies that are looking at the thawing of the permafrost. And um, this is a very nice picture we're seeing of a permafrost in the summer. We see some lakes with still some ice on them. And then we see these fantastic polygonal soils all around. And this is... I mean, is this very typical? Yeah, it's very typical of the thawing and the refreezing processes on land. So the uh, the edges of the polygons are where the uh, larger stones accumulate. So the mm. ice pushes the larger stones out in the uh, in the um, in the periphery, and then of course they make this honeycomb or like they're called polygonal soil, like polygons, and. Um, and of course, this happens and has, has happened every summer. Every summer, the permafrost thaws a little bit on the top because when the snow goes away and the albedo that you were talking about last time mm -hmm. allows more energy to come to the soil, then the soil thaws on the top. But it's recently going much faster. And, uh, and there are, I mean, we are talking about... Uh, about 23 million square kilometers of permafrost in the northern hemisphere and it's a lot of permafrost and uh, it's typically soil that has been frozen for about a million year <laughs> so so and uh, and when you're talking about frozen it's frozen you have an active layer on the top which is a layer that thaws and uh, and refreezes in the summer and All then right. you have the the stable layer going down. It Which, can go down. The, the stable quite layer a is lot. the one that is permanently frozen. That's why it's yeah. called permafrost, right? Yeah, yeah. Or well, you can also like the different kinds of there are different kinds of permafrost, and there we go in the science and we call it in the in jelly salts. So right. like like jelly, like uh, like uh, ice. Uh, no, and, nothing and is as simple as I want it to be. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> And, uh, and in any case, it can go really far down. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and when it thaws, I mean, if it's just the, the top, of course, we're used to having these cycles of thawing and refreezing. But when, we, when the permafrost thaws further down, then it actually allows things that are in the depth to be exposed, for example, to water flow and also to crawl up to the to the surface one, or to the be one exposed. thing the one thing that that comes to mind is the one thing that i've seen a lot in the media is like when they find a woolly mammoth that was frozen and then gets dug out is that the kind of exactly. stuff we're talking about well we are talking also about that kind of stuff and uh, i think there is a picture that identifies a few of the things that come out of the permafrost there's that your one mammoth there. right there so you see your mammoth there and so you have the active layer the permafrost and you see in different colors uh, on the top and you see also the accumulation of water in some lakes and things the mammoth of course they can come out to the surface and it's very quite a common event uh, it's not it's not that rare to get these big large animals coming out they are in more or less a good state of conservation um these are interesting of course, well, they are spectacular. Not, I mean, they are spectacular, 
and all is great. Some people also say that there were times where, like in times of need, one could go and eat some of the meat that was had been frozen for a couple of thousand years or maybe Ooh. about 10,000 years or something. Um, I wouldn't recommend it Mammoth in general. <laughs> it's, yeah, well matured. Um, but the problem there is that there you could get things that were living on that mammoth or maybe even causing its death. And uh, even in the soil, even in the absence of man mammoth, there are viruses, there are bacteria. Like uh, you have heard of uh, like uh, the anthrax, for example, mm -hmm. or uh, smallpox viruses and things that can come up in the tundra and can come up on the thermofrost. And if the if this permafrost reduces its extent, and we are talking about uh, about losing quite a significant amount of permafrost, we are saying up to two-thirds of the permafrost closer to the surface could be lost by the end of the century. We are talking about a lot of things living, or more or less living things, that can be released into the atmosphere, into the water circulation, birds, migrating to the Arctic can pick up something and take it down to the subarctic or further south. So there's we also stuff have, coming out that shouldn't be coming out. There shouldn't right. be coming out. And we also have some more recent stuff because a lot of chemicals that have been condensing over the Arctic and being deposited and being covered and incorporated in the permafrost. And we're talking about... Uh, about uh, chemicals uh, that have been man-made and uh, that are have been recognized as non, not, uh, I mean, an, a non-healthy <laughs> part of the ecosystem. We are talking about persistent organic pollutants. We are talking about even, even like metal uh, mercury or methyl or metal mercury that can be a. Uh, can be found there and we find also that there are some places where there are some nuclear fallouts or even especially in uh, in northern uh, siberia there are, there are places which are deposits of of nuclear waste and, oh so uh, so where they dug uh, mines uh, down there and then put nuclear waste yes. in the permafrost assuming that yes. it perma meant perma as in permanent yes exactly Uh -huh. Exactly. I mean, there are there are other places where nuclear waste is uh, dug into salt deposits, right. and that's uh, for the moment it's a little bit more stable than 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 the permafrost. Well, but, but of it course, the permafrost all is... depends on the scale of yeah. time that you're looking at because everything is in motion, and uh, and so much, especially this uh, nuclear waste and the, and the chemicals are so much of a. Uh, let's say of an emerging problem that uh, that the the russian government is set up a lot of actions in motion for cleaning up uh, especially around the uh, novaya zemlya for example mm -hmm. the uh, sites where there've been deposits of uh, of uh, of nuclear waste so what are they doing are they going to different sites and digging into more permanent frost or well there are some sites which are well known and uh, and then you uh, have to dig out these uh, early generation uh, nuclear waste and huh. uh, it's usually quite uh, quite toxic and quite nauseous and dangerous and uh, and there are others which are like dumping sites uh, last summer um, there was a scientific expedition that had some 
one of its goals was also to try to figure out where a container containing two damaged nuclear reactors from a submarine had been dumped into the sea and they managed to localize it. So now they know exactly where it is and then mm. they are planning on taking this up and taking it to a place that is less uh, that is less prone to corrosion. <laughs> Just to mention one thing. And then let's and it was see in how the, many hundred years in the, years in the, in the future it'll come out again. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. So, uh, yeah, the the Arctic uh, is uh, is an interesting place. And uh, and the thawing of the permafrost is one thing, but also, like, there are big variabilities. And this takes us to the next article that I wanted to bring up to. Right, because, because there attention. are places where there is too much ice, right? Yes, and especially when the ice comes a little bit earlier on. Now, I don't usually read war cargo news, but there were some some references, especially in Norwegian newspapers, about uh, about these things happening. Just small notice, and then I was looking for the most recent information. And we have one from war cargo news, and then from the Barents observers. And uh, this year, the northern sea route, so the 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 sea passage we call northeast passage or north of siberia going from europe to asia north of asia passing close north of asia is um is actually freezing up much earlier so it started freezing up already in the uh in the early october and a lot of ships have been caught there a lot of ships compared to the traffic that there is. Of course, this is not the Panama Canal. But if you see this picture of uh, the ice thickness that is provided by the Russian authorities, we can see that uh, now uh, it's also a polar view. You can see in gray the land area. So you see the uh, Asia and Europe. I always have like to reorient because the Russians show the polar view in a different orientation than the Americans well, do yes. or the Canadians do and the <laughs> Europeans do. So now Greenland yeah, is pointing exactly. upwards. Left Greenland is, poor, is pointing at eleven o'clock, and then we have uh, we have uh, <laughs> Russia way down at uh, at noon, at actually at uh, six o'clock, um, and um, and we see different colors. So we have along the shore of Siberia, we have like a purple color. Maybe you can help me, Chris, about the, the yeah. It thickness. says ten to thirty centimeters here. That's the ten purple to thirty color. centimeters. It's it's kind of a, a channel there. And then the next color is green. Yeah, and that's, that's between thirty and two meters, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, and that's a very big area of green ice, and especially we can see that the green ice is connecting the very fast ice, which is brown, which is a central polar ice to the land in a couple of places and especially the place around Wrangell Island so on the east of the Northeast Passage connecting to Chukotka the uh, Wrangell Island we have a big ice bridge that is connecting <laughs> the uh, connecting Wrangell Island to and the mainland and it's an ice and bridge of relatively thick ice yes and then we have the difficulty in passing the New Siberian Islands and the Taimir and uh, and these ships have to be rescued, uh, partly because there are, of course, lives that are at stake, and that's, of course, one of the <laughs> one so of the. Uh, we're talking about ships being frozen in in the ice. There, yeah, these are ships that usually are ice uh, reinforced, so they can cope with a little bit of ice, mm. but they couldn't cope with ice up to two meters thickness, which yes. is also something that you need an icebreaker for 
plowing through. Yeah. So they were caught in there. Even a even a um, how do you call it a um, research uh, vessel from from Russia was uh, was um, was caught in in there, and uh, and uh, so the uh, the Russian agency. Uh, the Rosatom Flot, uh, the uh, Russian agency that is uh, managing the uh, icebreakers, had to send several of the older and newer icebreakers, including the the newest, which is the Arctica, that um, is uh, has come out as early as possible up to rescue these ships. And to rescue a ship out of the ice takes time. You cannot take all of the ships at once, usually. Because the icebreaker can plow a channel, but the ice blocks out again after one. The ships do not have brakes, so it's very difficult going in a convoy and breaking the ice because the icebreaker at times has to like stop, retreat, and ram the ice and come up on the ice and break it. So it is not a constant speed, uh, the breaking of the ice, so you cannot really have a convoy and then tell the people in the back, like, watch so, out, don't So you have a time window between when the icebreaker breaks the ice and when the ice closes back up yes. again behind the icebreaker. Doesn't yes. sound easy. And you have to pass into this channel. And these channels are also quite filled with chunks of ice. Of course. Which are... Like if you have a chunk of ice as big as a small car, it's probably a couple of tons of weight. <laughs> so, <laughs> and you don't so want that to bang into your ship side. If your ship is not enough reinforced, you have to be very careful in pushing these things to the side. Yes, in general, you don't plow at high speed through yeah. a field with the ice. Even if it has been broken by an icebreaker, you have to be going slowly and push the ice away out of your path. Oh. And uh, as a... Um, as a last uh, little thing before we finish off, I had uh, uh, found this a uh, YouTube video uh, and uh, like the list of the um, of the of the icebreaker. This is Yamal, which is one of the big uh, um, nuclear icebreaker that is plowing through the ice. We can see a video of the uh, bow of the ship with the searchlight because of course we are in the winter and uh, it's dark most of the time and uh, to see how it does it i mean the amal is very big and quite powerful so you need a large ship and a, a powerful engine because you need to push the ship up on the ice and crush it with the weight of the ship and the weight so can this be also one increased is, by this one is nuclear powered water this is nuclear powered, so it can operate continuously as far as uh, the humans can do it. And uh, it, uh, with small ice, it just breaks it without stopping. And thicker ice, it needs to come on top of and then break it with its weight. And it, as I, I was mentioning before, that it can increase its weight by pumping more water into some ballast in the hull, so to make itself heavier. And that takes even this is more. This amazing then, pictures. These are really amazing yeah. pictures with, with all the ice on the ship. And that, that probably yeah. adds to the weight of the ship as well. So It does. It does. It can be extremely dangerous. Yeah. Icing yeah. is yeah. extremely dangerous. But you can see here that uh, the Yamal went uh, close to a cargo vessel with containers. It approached it and it hooked it up a little bit like with a tow hitch on a car. And wow. it hooked it up behind it. And it's just pulling it away and pulling it through 
the ice and uh, taking it out with a beautiful sight in there. Yeah. So this is uh, this is something that uh, requires uh, quite a lot of expertise and uh, a lot of, let's uh, say, resources. I, I remember. I remember um, I was on the Norderlicht once uh, crossing from Norway up to Svalbard and that was in winter and that was, it was a constant battle against the ice building up on the ship. So you had to go out yeah. a couple of times a day with a big wooden hammer and bang against the hull to, to, to get rid of the ice that was forming because that would make the ship too heavy and too hard to maneuver too top heavy, and to top heavy yeah. pretty much yeah so mm -hmm. so that was a constant fight and just being in that environment permanently um and having to crash through the ice is wow yeah it is uh, it is not for just about everybody to, <laughs> to it was an adventure to navigate in the in the winter in icing condition true adventure and, uh, And it's a, it's true adventure, and it is it is actually uh, one of the messages or one of the warnings that you have in the Norwegian coastal forecast or weather forecast for for um, uh, for the ships is the danger of uh, icing on deck, right? Because that, of course, is uh, is quite dangerous. It usually happens when you have a lot of spray coming on deck and, uh, and these yeah. are conditions where it's not safe to go out one uh, just as a piece of trivia uh, the uh, some ships for example the uh, norwegian coast guard uh, vessel uh, called uh, svalbard uh, has uh, heating on the on the deck oh okay so it can use heat from the engine or from additional heaters to uh, to heat up the um To heat up the uh, the deck and therefore melt the ice, and this works up to a certain temperature. Because when you go below a certain temperature, you you need you need a hull to be really really hot. It also needs <laughs> fuel and energy, and uh, exactly. it takes away from from the energy that you can use to propel the ship. Yes, and, and then, you do not have course. geothermal like uh, like Reykjavik, who they have uh, heated sidewalks, so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here in in Norway, maybe you've seen that that you have heated sidewalks as well, but these are with electricity and they are produced with hydropower, hydroelectric power, <laughs> which, because which... Norway had uh, has for the moment quite a lot of. But... Yeah, but it's it's amazing <laughs> that uh, you walk around the cities here in Tromsø, for example, and uh, and the sidewalks are heated, are heated, Somewhere. and and full of lava in some places at least. Yes. All right. Um, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Um, I guess we'll be back, well, at least once more before Christmas. And uh, Mario, thank you so much for putting this together. It's always a pleasure. You're welcome. It's always um, a pleasure for me to do that. And thanks even, for the chat, Chris. E even though some sometimes these topics are a bit of doomy gloomy, but, um, well, we're doing our best to keep it light. We'll be back soon. Until then, everyone, take care. And bye-bye. Take care.